Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what is the future of movies? So some podcasts like to start with a funny story or a joke, but uh, we start with definitions. Here at the Review of the Future podcast, we start by telling you what we're talking about. So movies, what are those? Okay, everybody knows what a movie is, but we're talking about something kind of specific here. For the purposes of this episode, we're not talking about television. So a movie to us has a low rate of serialization, right? It might have sequels, but it would be produced like one at a time, in most cases, not like a season at a time. Right. That's to distinguish movies from TV, yeah. which are highly serialized. And of course, everybody knows that movies are audiovisual, right? and that they are pre-sequenced or they're linear. You play them back. They're not performed live. Right, and they're not games where you can make choices and have branching paths and so on. Well, I mean, you can have a movie like Clue, where there's multiple endings, but you see all of them in a linear sequence. You don't press a button and then only see one ending. Exactly. Right. We're also going to lean towards narrative work and just stuff you would watch for fun, recreational stuff. So we're, we're ruling out a few things. We're not talking about, you know watching lectures online or training videos, and we're not going to talk too much about non-narrative stuff. We're going to focus mostly on storytelling. Mostly we're focusing, I think, on fictional feature films in the sort of traditional American sense. Uh, All right, right? so you know what a movie is. Now we we can actually start. Yeah, Uh, sorry for that, but just so there's no confusion. These are the kind of dorks that we are. We like precision in our discussion. Even with something as obvious as a movie, we thought we ought to tell you what we meant. So the big elephant in the room, if you're talking about futurism and movies, right, is like the impact of the coming VR technology, right? Let's just start there. What is going to happen to movies like at the end of this year when the Oculus Rift comes out? Right. And obviously this is a big new technology and I feel like it's going to land somewhere on a spectrum, right? That goes from, say, a technology like color which came along to movies and basically became the default for nearly all movies, and a technology like 3D, which has continued to be pretty marginalized, even though it's had somewhat of a resurgence recently. So what kind of adoption rate is virtual reality going to have? Is this going to be the new paradigm that most movies are made in, or is this going to be uh, half of movies, or is this going to be like a small fraction of of gimmicky movies that are you know stay around five percent? That's the question I'd like to ask. Yeah, that's interesting. To me, it's hard to imagine that because my experience with VR so far to imagine what to answer that question along that spectrum at all is okay. difficult for me because my experience with VR so far is that it's actually fundamentally not movies; it's its own medium, and whatever the adoption rate is. I feel like everything that's VR is like almost outside of my definition of what movies are. Well, so we, part well that's why we had to give the definition of right, it because right. it becomes important because part of our definition is that it's so linear. maybe it will take over for movies and people will do it instead of movies. Well, it's competition for your entertainment dollar, so it's part of the same like area of need. But part of our definition was that movies are linear, right? And and in a VR, at the very minimum, usually you can turn your head right? And look in different directions. Okay. Yeah. So uh, current VR technology, the way it is, I mean, there are linear experiences, both VR video and uh, programmed, you know, CG. But you can still look in different directions. It's true. You can turn your head in in all these things. Maybe I don't mean linear. Maybe I mean that there's an interactive element that is not present in previous movies. And I guess that wasn't part of our definition, but most movies are not interactive. You cannot change where the camera is. No, you can focus on different parts of the screen. And there's a little bit of choice in terms of what you pay attention to okay, in a movie, sure. but it's pretty limited, right? right? I mean, in a movie, it's a lot of control that the creators have. And in VR, you give up some of that control. So yeah, where is the line? Is it just turning your head? Or for me, I think where the line falls is whether you can alter the sequence. When we did that Paul McCartney concert that was in VR, uh, we could turn our heads. We could decide where, whether we wanted to look at Paul McCartney or whether we wanted to look at the crowd. But the song played in linear fashion the same way for you and for me. Right. A lot of the examples that we saw at the recent VR Expo kept the linear part, right? But again, to me, the head turning, though, is is the issue. I think about it this way, right? I think about a movie. Part of what makes a movie different from a game is that the director or the team of people working on the movie have a certain amount of authorial control in guiding you, right? Right. I do feel that's undermined when even in those simplistic examples like the jaunt VR uh, Paul McCartney video. Now, I think you could 
take away the ability to turn your head, and then what are you left with? You're just left with, I guess, like a wide a screen. A 3D movie, yeah. That's strapped to your face? Yeah. Which is still cool. I mean, that's IMAX at home. Right, and that's something we talked with Jason Gans about on our uh, VR episode, right? Was uh, one thing that VR headsets might do is just provide serious competition for flat screen TVs. Like, just being a better home TV, because you strap it on your face, and then it's, you know, the equivalent of 40 feet right in front of you and it does 3d naturally because it's already going into both eyes so i guess it's possible that one use of vr is just you just impose those limits on it arbitrarily so that it almost like simulates watching tv so if you turn your head you know the image doesn't change just maybe where the tv is projected changes right well and if you're going to go down that road then you can simulate a virtual movie theater right or a virtual playhouse right where uh maybe if it's a movie theater you might even be able to look at someone sitting next to you uh, as if they're there with you and again the screen stays in one place and you very much preserve the movie going experience right or the screen gets so big that you can't see the edges of it right well you could make the best movie theater in the world is the thing inside this right it's in that way it becomes competition potentially for real theaters uh, right right if it gets good enough as well as for yeah. tvs flat screen right TVs. and already tvs i think are competing with theaters to some degree i mean people are supposedly building home theaters and staying home just on, on, on some level right and it's hard to say if this like you know this is maybe somewhat of an advancement in that if you again if you could be there with your friends sort of next to you and if it was a nice enough experience with the size of the screen and the quality of the audio uh, it might cut into that market even more. Although you know, you're still not going to be able to eat like the popcorn that's there, or like no, but you can eat your own popcorn at home. That's true. I don't know. It sounds pretty good to me as an alternative to watching movies on a TV. I'm not sure that it would necessarily be better than the movie theater experience for me, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. I mean, I already watch a lot of movies on TV, so clearly I make the choice to do that for convenience a lot of the time. Theaters are extremely limited in what they can be showing at any given time Mm -hmm. so it seems like it'll compete you know it won't be the only thing going but it'll compete but at a certain point if this is how you're using your vr i mean you're not really changing the movie form anymore no i mean we're talking about simulating movies inside vr i think once you stop doing that though for me it stops being movies it becomes something else it becomes this nascent vr art form and i don't know that we know that much about what that's going to be like but that's certainly a fascinating question i mean it may involve interactivity or it may not. Well, let's let's look at it this way. Let's say we take interactivity out of it. Yeah. As just something else that we're not going to talk about. That's games or whatever. Sure. And we say it's storytelling. It's linear, right? Okay. But we, we allow for this new development, which is that the audience has 360 degrees of vision. Right. But there's and- more consequences than just that. Because once you have 360 degrees of vision, you basically can't have editing. Not in the way that we have with film. Because when you cut, it's not the shot cutting. It's the whole world disappearing. And it's really disorienting. So it's going to be a lot more long takes. Okay, sure. A lot more choreographed scenes. Well, and I don't know if they'll find a way to cut that's more natural or maybe they'll do more crossfades and dissolves. I don't know how. I right. mean, but okay, but let's allow for the fact that that is a limitation they'll have to work around, yeah. right? It's, but it's still a linear storytelling form. Well, I just think it's a big part of the medium that changes. Right, but as a filmmaker, right? Yeah. If you're going to make an idea. Yeah. Right, and you want to reach an audience with that idea and for it to be effective, right? And let's even be a little cynical about it. Like you, you're not just trying to make art here. Like you're trying to make something that your, your audience say, is let's going Let's say you're to... like a film studio and you want to make money. Right. Okay. okay. Sure. Exactly. I mean, we have those, so that's realistic. So what kind of yeah. idea are you going to want to make in this new form versus the old form? And is there competition there? Like wh- which wins, right? Like, right? like if VR is like, make your idea with me and movies are like, make your idea with me. Like who are you going to go to? <laughs> Right. That's and it, with which ideas? That's interesting. I mean, here's here's a difference between the immersive VR experience and the traditional movie-going experience. The traditional mo- movie-going experience is like a third-person experience. You see somebody mm-hmm. and you identify with them, but you are not them. Mm-hmm. You, you, they are someone else who's not you. Right. It, it, it elicits your, you know, empathy, your motor... Your mirror neurons? Yeah, yeah, mirror neurons. It, it supposedly, like, you know, affects that. It obviously elicits empathy. We've all experienced that. That's clearly the case. But it's like, you know that there's someone else who's not you. When you're experiencing VR storytelling, it's like a second-person experience. It's like happening to you. Like, you're there in it. It's super subjective. Now, movies sometimes put you in that place by using POV shots, you know, by right. using close-ups. They, they get you into that subjective 
immersive place, or at least they try to. They try to, and they sometimes, if they're well-made, can do it for like short bursts. But not all movies do that. And that's, no. that's what I think, because I think that the movies that are already striving for that yeah. hardcore are going to do well in VR, but a lot of movies that thrive on distance, like right. comedies, for example. Right. Or austere dramas, like, you know, those made by Germanic filmmakers that we both like. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, those are going to be basically impossible to pull off in the VR format, unless you resort to this sort of simulating movie making kind of thing that we're talking about, where you have a screen. Or unless you devise a whole new set of formal elements. And yeah, maybe so something I can't think of. Right. But right, yeah, right. I, I think that's, that's what so, I think. Cause I think it's like zooming in with the VR, like so far into the story that you're creating this extra intense identification and level of realness that I think will be desirable in some cases and not in other cases. Right. Um, so I guess my, my answer to my original question of the, the adoption is that like, if we accept that it's somewhat equivalent to movies, is that I think it's going to be actually kind of marginal. I still think we're going to... I would venture to say that we're still going to have mostly old school movies in this sort of linear storytelling space. I think like VR movies are going to be popular, but I think they're going to be less than 50%. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's so hard for me to say. I think there's a possibility uh, that there's some way to use this VR medium that I can't really wrap my mind around yet that would be you know more broadly applicable than yeah i mean i'm saying. making a wild prediction here but i have no the, idea but from what i've seen these experiences are very subjective very affecting personally and they have like kind of a novelistic quality in that sense they kind of they have a direct access to your head in a way that regular movies even with pov shots like there's always some distance i think so i, I think they're going to be stories that are much more like wish fulfillment oriented and far less challenging. You know, feature filmmaking is characterized by a lot of very high stakes. You know, even the movies that are mainstream and everything turns out well in the end, there's mm-hmm. like life or death stakes throughout. Uh, that might be terrifying. Right. You don't necessarily want to be in a crazy car chase. Or like, you know, um, being interrogated by a brutal interrogator, which like I can think of 10 movies that have like a hilarious or entertaining scene in which somebody is being interrogated violently. But you don't, you don't want to like be sitting in Dennis Hopper's chair in True Romance, like looking out at Christopher Walken killing you. That would be terrifying, you know? No, or you wouldn't want to be like in, in, a, in a period scene of trench warfare or something like There's many scenarios that you wouldn't necessarily want to be zoomed into. Right. I mean, depending on who you are, of course. Well, I mean, and yeah, and there, there may be some way to present those things where it's entertaining, but I think it's, you're not going to want to traumatize your audience. And I think when you have distance, as you do in a traditional film you you can go to darker places well but you know what let's back up a second because in that interrogation scene right there's no reason that in a vr movie you can't just be like a disembodied ghost in the room you don't have to be the guy sitting in the chair or even the uh person doing the torturing again we'll have to see how it plays out but i feel like it's so subjective the actual experience of seeing it that even if you're not addressed as a character and you're not literally a character you feel like part of it in a way that's different from movies. You still think it's still going to have so, that zoomed in quality I, even... I, I think people are going to gravitate toward having the camera be a character because it already kind of feels like it's happening to you. And I think that's just sort of, that's just my prediction about how the, the medium is going to go from having experienced it. Like when I got out of those uh, demos that we did, all the ideas that I was thinking of were subjective first person stories about a person who X and the person's the camera. And uh, I've been having some discussions with other folks that are interested in this and, and their ideas have been along similar lines. I think there's just going to be a pull toward that because the experience of it is so like being a person in the room. Well, the VR movies that are out now that are circulating through festivals, do you know much about those? Only from what I've had described to me by my friend who went to Sundance and did like the, the flying one with the, you know, the table with the fans and all that. You're going to have to explain um, that. Cause okay. So at Sundance this year, they had a flying VR exhibit. I don't remember the name of it, but we'll look it up and put it in the show notes. And it was a, a table that sort of looked like a massage table, but um, with hydraulics and a fan that blew air in your face mm-hmm. and uh, a Gear VR headset. And then inside uh, the software was using just Google Maps, like satellite images of uh, San Francisco mapped onto you know a digital model of the city to sort of simulate a city and then you flew around 
So it was completely abstract wish fulfillment. No, real almost like a dream story. And I think it was intended to be more of like an art piece than than like a tech demo. But I'm not sure of that. So it's like you know basically just taking the dream of flight and trying to actually you know create that with with existing technology. I mean, to me, that's a killer app. If I could buy that, I would buy it right now. Like I would do that. that right. Sounds but great. it's not. It doesn't really feel like movie making. No. It doesn't. It feels like a kind of game, a very simple kind of game that doesn't have points or, you know, of course you could easily add those. Wait, can you control it, right? where you go? I think, yeah, to some degree, like by turning your head. So it's like an interactive play space with no, you know, with rules, but no particular goal. Okay. So I think that what we're converging on here is just the opinion that this may provide some competition for nice home theater systems and flat screen TVs. Yeah, maybe something it does along with playing games. It's going to be a game platform. It's yeah. it's going to provide a lot of these cool new interactive experiences, right. uh, but it's not really going to be that much of a new movie viewing platform necessarily. Right, right. right. That's my prediction. I think that, yeah, to the extent that there's going to be VR storytelling, it's going to be almost like a brand new medium that is going to have to really answer the question about interactivity and story and can those things coexist or are they always at cross purposes which i think is the jury's still out on that but i'm skeptical <laughs> but that is a huge topic but so yeah. we'll move on now anyway. to the next thing on our on our list of discussion points here which is what's going to happen to the cost of movies in the future the cost of movie production right so it's obvious to point out that certain kinds of production costs have already gone way down uh access to quality image making basically cameras and quality editing and even special effects tools have gone right. way I down. Mean, the other image making tools are computers, of course. And, right. and those costs have also gone way down. Uh, distribution has gone way down. I mean, all across the board, it's gotten so much cheaper. Obviously, web distribution allows you to get your stuff out for free. But even, you know, the DCPs, you know, the hard drives that they play movies off of now sure. cost, you know, three grand. And it used to cost 30 grand, literally, for a print. So Right, most of the gains are the move away from film to video. To has, digital, of yeah. course. I mean, you know, as everything's gone to digital video, it's just gotten cheaper and cheaper. But there are other fixed costs that remain relatively high. Obviously, the cost of the labor and the form of your quality actors and crew that you need to make a good film. Right. Uh, they have to be fed. They Many of them have to be paid if they're of decent quality. Yeah, and there's unions and there's legacy costs oh, associated yeah. with that. And also there's, you know, that's likely to remain high for a long time because there's a status element to it. You know, I mean, the, the top actor in the world is always going to be the top actor in the world. Superstar economics are named for these people. They are the original superstars. This has been affecting them for a hundred years. And, you know, if you're Jennifer Lawrence or something, there's just a status value of having you in, in the movie that's, that's worth the $20 million that you're going to get paid. Sure. Well, yeah. and crew, I think, too, is a bit sticky because even if your crew changes from being, you know, an on-site, you know, camera and lighting crew to being primarily a visual effects and post-production crew, um, as things trend right. in that direction, it's still a lot of talent that you have to hire Indeed. and pay wages to. And really, that actually makes it more expensive in some ways because the so many expanded options that you have. Uh, when you're using computer technology as opposed to like trying to stuff something into a lens, you you end up spending more time on it. I mean, I guess theoretically you don't have to, but what generally ends up happening is like these post budgets just get extreme. You got more options. Yeah. So, yeah. so labor costs are still high for now. Locations obviously are a fixed cost that hasn't gone down. You have to find good places to shoot and there's you have finite amounts of light and sometimes weather conditions vary and there's all kinds of things there that drive your costs up. Sure. Uh, Insurance is one. Insurance is a fixed cost that, again, it's like there's this huge industry built around keeping those costs high. It seems unlikely to change too much in the future. Right. And then also marketing, right? I mean, as we discussed in a recent episode, you right. know, attention is scarce. So getting people to watch your movie, even if you distribute it super cheaply, is still going to be pretty expensive. And this is one of those things where like on the really low end, technology has helped. And, you know, self-marketing is now cheaper than it's ever been and now more effective than it's ever been. Mm -hmm. If you need to self-market your little Vimeo movie, you know, you can use Facebook to do it and very cheaply get it done. At the high end, though, costs have not gone down, they've gone up. And they're paying more for fewer views because it's harder than ever to reach people. So to manage to get us to talk about minions, right, they had to pay something like $185 million 
which is basically like around, you know, double what they paid to make the movie. Right. Well, we're bringing up Minions because uh, Minions had the biggest advertising blitz I've ever seen. And because every time we say Minions, we get 10 cents. There were like two days there where I couldn't help but see something to do with Minions everywhere in every medium from billboards to every single app I used on my computer. It was insane. I was there was just, a huge media blitz for Minions and it paid off big time for them. They made a ton of money. So the sad fact is they're probably going to keep doing stuff like that. But yeah, it's it's very expensive. You have to have a huge capital outlay to market just because cutting through the noise is so hard. You have to do everything. Now, I think that we can speculate about ways that some of these fixed costs we just mentioned can be driven down as well. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. And, and I think the main one to talk about is, is virtual filmmaking technology. And I right. don't love that term because we just talked about virtual reality and they sound sort of similar. But what I really mean is making your film essentially animation tools, right? Right. We're or, talking about making the film in the box. And increasingly, of course, films are mostly made in computers anyway, but we don't think of them as being animations because they have live action or live action looking actors. And those lines are starting to blur, right? We're getting closer and closer to the day that we'll have basically digital puppets that look like real actors, possibly even having the likenesses of licensed scanned actors. Right. It essentially is more or less animation at that point. And when, you, when you're making animation, you don't have the problem of locations and insurance. Those are just stricken from the list pretty much completely. Right. You and have equipment costs and, and labor, but that's it. When your labor costs are different, right? There are animation tools that are getting pretty powerful now that, mm-hmm. you know, small groups of people can use. Obviously, there's people on the internet uh, that are making these Machinima movies. If you're not familiar with Machinima, some of our Listeners might not be nerdy. Sure, let's explain what that is. that is. That's when people use a existing 3D engine, usually a game engine, to generate animated scenes mm-hmm. uh, for an original piece of animation. So they write something. Uh, in some cases, they actually create all original assets using the game engine. In other cases, they use existing assets from existing games. And then they do like a sort of digital puppetry with the uh, game controllers and there's a way to output the result of that as video. You can cut it together and add your own audio and basically make a movie all inside the box. Right. And I think the original one of those, or one of the most popular original ones, was Red versus Blue. Sure. Which used Halo as its basis. And in the early days of this Machinima stuff, I mean, people were literally just playing the game. Yeah, and screen capping. And screen capping. Right. Uh, and then adding dialogue and stuff later. But it, once it became a thing, uh, some of the game companies started to actually enable it and, and provide access to their engines. And I think the most comprehensive of that is the Valve one. Right. Well, this is an application called, it's called Source Filmmaker. Right. Source Filmmaker, you know, uses their characters primarily. I haven't actually messed with it myself, but it's supposed to be extremely high quality. I've seen, obviously, the films made with it. And there are also competitors in this market, too. There's two other applications that I that I know of, again, neither of which I have firsthand experience with, but they are uh, iClone and MovieStorm. And all of these are trying to create tools so that you can easily you know, take models of pre-made characters, put them in sets, you know, dress the set however you want, place a camera in it, place some lights in it, and essentially create an animated movie, possibly as one person or maybe one person and a partner, and make all of that inside one PC. Yeah. And I think the promise of that is it could drive costs way down if it gets good enough. Now, I we haven't had like a blockbuster success no. uh, made with these kinds of tools yet. No, and I, we haven't even had like a sort of like you an know, indie success? weirdo yeah, aesthetic success. And I think part of the challenge is that the so right now the aesthetics of these things are not terribly controllable, not maybe enough to like create a limited but very cool aesthetic the way that you know, people have in the past with rotoscoping or with, you know, other kinds of like fringy video processing. Well, we can assume this stuff is going to get better, right? Yeah, I, mean, I think so. I mean, it, you know, it's just tapping into better and better game engines. And there's such an economic incentive be- behind making better game engines that it, it seems inevitable that like when there's a system like this built off of one of the current generation, most realistic engines, like the ones used for like PS4 games or whatever, uh, you're going to be able to do some pretty remarkable work with that. Well, and I think the key is it also has to be paired with a good user interface. Sure, it has to be usable to some degree. I mean, because that's the idea is that obviously you can do all this now with teams of skilled professionals, but if you can make this so that a single 
hobbyist has a streamlined enough tool that they can whip something up that can, you know, win all the film festivals. Right. I mean, I think that would be a different world. And I don't think we're possibly that far from that. Right. Right. I mean, I think some of the things that would have to happen, obviously the graphics would have to get better. They could be more stylized, like you were talking about in terms of their animation, or they could go the opposite direction to become more photorealistic. Well, I think they've achieved a pretty amazing amount of photorealism in the most latest generation engines, but I don't think any of those are available for for this type of tool. Right, yet. but we can imagine that that technology yeah, yeah, yeah. will filter it'll down. Tr- it'll trickle down, sure. Uh, yeah. Obviously, having access to large asset libraries or at least easy ways to create assets, not everybody can model things, um, but if there's a large library of things available or if it becomes easier to scan things and quickly turn them into models, that's a technology that's getting better right, as right, well. Right, right, uh, If you could just you know, scan any object. They on have your like desk. some tablets, I think now that have uh, 3D cameras, like you know, you know, stereoscopic cameras, and they you can basically run them over things, and they'll scan in real time. Oh, that sounds very cool. Uh, the object and and map you know a video picture onto it. Right. So you could sculpt, say, puppets in your house, and then scan them into your machine and animate them in the computer. But I think the the trickiest part is because you can watch, you know, just the demo videos of the things that people are making with the tools that I just mentioned, like iClone and Movie Storm mm-hmm. and so on. And they're pretty cool. And where they mostly, I think, seem to fall down is in the facial expressions. I mean, this is where... Right. But there is progress here too, right? In terms of... I mean, there's only so many human facial expressions that exist. And I just like, you know, getting those to move uh, in a way that is pleasing to watch obviously you see high budget animated movies that can pull it off like you can watch you sure. know really great pixar movies and the facial expressions are, are good or even 100 year old warner brothers cartoons the facial expressions are often pretty good right so the key is automating it or like you know do it off of a video of a human face oh yeah i mean they started that work with avatar so they had like these small cameras pinned to their faces uh, with super wide angles and they were getting the facial expressions and then they just mapped the eye movements and some of the other things onto the cat people in Avatar. So I think what you'll do is, right, you'll sit there with your friend and the two of you will act all the parts. If you take audio at the same time, then you can, you'll, all the facial expressions and mouth movements will automatically sync up. So, I mean, I think we're going to see progress on all these fronts and this is going to potentially continue to drive down the costs of movies, at least for independent filmmakers. Well, it's interesting. I mean, right now it's like a parallel path. It doesn't make movies that look or feel like regular movies, but I think at some point it might cross that line. At that point, that's interesting. I mean, right now, Machinima is a great way to like prototype something or a great way to like do something odd. But if you want to make a regular movie that's going to play in theaters and feel like a regular movie, you have to use actors and everything. At some point, that may shift. I imagine it crossing that line, I would venture, you know, within the next 10 years. Because to me, it seems like all these things are, that need to improve are improving. Now, I mean... Hard to say. I, I mean, don't know. I mean, human actors are obviously still going to be appealing. But I don't know. I mean, let's talk about... Well, you know, if you want to have a real big name actor in your movie and you have like a really high quality model of them. Um, and again, I've seen some demos of stuff like this. That's pretty convincing. I mean, I guess you might run into some kind of intellectual property issues there. I don't oh, know. This is definitely going to be like a licensing kind of situation because, you know, uh, actors already are highly incentivized to protect their likeness rights. You know, they go after all kinds of misuses of their likeness. So uh, I think these models will definitely get done, but you'll have to pay for them for sure. Though, I mean, you know, it's got to be cheaper to use the Tom Cruise model than to hire actual Tom Cruise because Act- yeah. his time is scarce. So just economics insists it's going to be cheaper to some degree. And it may be good enough for your purpose, especially if it comes with a licensed algorithm that acts like Tom Cruise. But that is maybe Well, that's on. even further or into the future. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, another bottleneck, of course, is the, the actual voice acting, right? Which, right. I mean, I don't know exactly where we are with voice synthesis technology, but my impression is not very far. I mean, Voice synthesis technology is not great, and it's something where most of the research is being done in another language that's not English. It's Japanese, mostly. Uh, I think Chinese, too, but... The, all the best voice synthesis products that I know of are Japanese products, and they do a passable job of speaking Japanese, but not great, and their job of speaking English is much worse. <laughs> so, you know, obviously, that's something that's going to get better, uh, and maybe very rapidly once, you know, because it seems like the kind of thing that these deep learning networks are going to be really good at. But I imagine since voice acting and the recording of audio is already so cheap, I imagine that 
voice synthesis can't really get cheap enough to displace it completely. Because you can basically do that for nothing. I mean, it's like a little bit of time for the people saying the words and and that's it. You, you need, it you can need, do it almost anywhere. The, the equipment is really minor. You need voice talent, I suppose. You need voice talent and, you know, the, the subtleties of being able to act are like a long ways away for computers, I think. I think, you know. You'll be able to find someone in your neighborhood with a decent enough voice and yeah. you'll be able to take a lot of takes and you'll be able yeah. to pick the best one. And remember, we have great signal processing. So you can change your voice from male to female. You can add all kinds of effects. Signal processing is just getting better and better and it's already really good for audio and it's very cheap. You do it all in the box. So it, the power will be with the creator. If like if you're making a movie on your own on a on a one of these rigs and you are a pretty good voice actor yourself, you could probably play all the parts and change up your voice enough even with today's technology to be able to get away with that. So I guess my overall thesis here would be that costs have been driven way down. We've hit some places where the costs are stuck, but I think there's room for them to go even further. There's one place where costs are actually going up, though. What's right? that? Technological innovation. So movies have a long history mm. of being pioneering technically, whether you're talking about color or 3D or CG dinosaurs or whatever it is. They're always trying to push the state of the art forward. There's a strong incentive in the commercial market to do that because you can market it as, oh, the first movie with this or that. And that is expensive as hell. And every few years, they make another movie that's the most expensive movie ever made. Uh, this year was Jurassic World. Before that, it was Avatar, et cetera, et cetera. And each of those has huge technical challenges. And the reason they're so expensive is because they've never been done before. So they require a lot of trial and error and new equipment and brand new software to be written and all kinds of things like that. Well, isn't that kind of like what the market is starting to look like right now? Is that on the high end, we have these tremendously big budget yep. movies that are really pushing the technological envelope. And then on the low end, we have a lot of these, you know, very, very amateur productions, say on YouTube, but also like sort of medium level amateur productions making independent movies and the festival circuit and things like that. Right. And but even the festival circuit, like the average price of movies has dropped from, you know, like 15 to 30 down to million dollars down to like sub 5 million. Right. So the cheap movies are getting cheaper and the expensive movies are getting more expensive. More and more expensive and and more ambitious. Is hollowing out. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that is what we've seen in the commercial industry in the last decade or so. And I think that's probably likely to get worse. And the, the ones at the top, I think, are likely to get fewer and more expensive at the same time as they take even fewer of these really big chances on only the very biggest properties that they have the most likely success with. And then they feel obligated because there are so few of them to really make them into these giant events where something huge has to be pushed forward each time. Well, and actually, so that kind of like bifurcation, basically, where you have a few very expensive movies and a lot of very cheap movies actually leads into the next point that we wanted to talk about. Uh, We mentioned at the beginning of the episode, serialization, right? right? And so... TV shows are highly serialized and uh, movies we're calling not serialized, although it is a spectrum, right? And movies sometimes become more serial when they have tons and tons of sequels, which we see recently. And I think that the bifurcated production model where you have a few super big budget releases that are highly expensive is one of the things forcing movies towards a more serial sequel-based model. Yes. Because you become more risk-averse when you start paying those high price tags. Right. And the, the known property becomes, I think, even more attractive. Right. The franchise, which is what they call this, right? The, the property that generates many sequels. So there's still features in the sense that they're made one at a time. They're sort of conceived of one at a time. But they are part of a franchise whole. Those are now basically exclusively what the major film studios produce. The era of producing original one-off non-franchise just genre films or you know things like that uh is essentially over i mean that's gone from being a significant portion of the film industry's output to being an insignificant fraction and that's really a change in the last 15 years there have been sequels all throughout film history and before television there was actually film serials right they used to do buck rogers and stuff once a month or something like that in the in the pre-television days but in our lifetimes uh, serialized movies were like rare events when we were growing up, you know, Star Wars or something like that, Back to the Future. You know, every once in a while you'd have one of those. But now it's basically every movie. 
It's pretty much the standard, yeah. That's one of the reasons we're seeing a push towards more serialization, I think, is how expensive these big budget movies are. Right. But I think there's other reasons why even more serial releases and more of a television model is kind of taking over as well. And actually, you had told me some interesting statistics earlier about like TV. Right. Well, I just saw in Variety today, the like president or something of FX was talking about how there's, there's more than 400 serial scripted series on television this year, which is basically double what there was 10 years ago. And uh, in that same amount of time, uh, Hollywood feature film output is basically halved. They went from making, you know, about 200 films a year to about 100. So there's a demonstrable shift from oh, yeah. less serial to more serial. And even all the movies they are making now are basically semi-serialized. You know, they're these, they're these franchise movies. Well, right. And we talked about why that would be the case. But here would be my theory why we're seeing more television. And I, I, this is pure speculation. You can tell me if you think this is wrong or not. Which is that these serial releases, because there's literally more output, there's literally more right. episodes or whatever you want to call them, there's more releases means that there's more chances to grab the things that you want to grab. So first of all, attention, right? If you start a TV show, there's more time to build word of mouth, but also more releases means more opportunities to monetize it, right? More monetization options, things like selling ads, uh, things like subscription models, things like sustaining fan engagement over a long period of time that might lead to you selling. Right. Um, I mean, I think the biggest thing other, is that one. It's yeah. building brand. That's what you and, think it is? The yeah. complimentary sales, I think complimentary sales because every time you release an Avengers movie, it's not just an Avengers movie. It's an ad for next year's Avengers movie. Right, but you're still and, talking about like like the sequels, right? I'm well, also but this talking also about- applies to just preferring serial content because every week that you release another episode, or if you're Netflix, every year that you release another mm-hmm. season, because that's how you're dumping them out. You're not just advertising that one thing, you're advertising all future things because you're creating brand awareness about, you know, True Detective or or Mad Men or whatever. Well, it has it is. time to build and you have more people there for longer, mm-hmm. like, you know, and for some people like things like Game of Thrones become an obsession, you know. Sure. And there's like tons of fan content made right. around those things. And I assume that leads to other complimentary sales of all kinds, right? Things that they can profit right, off of. Right, right, right. Uh, all kinds of licensing and, and different things that they can do. And I think another part of it is that there is so very much content being made now. So gaining awareness for your product is much harder than it used to be. And if you have more chances to do that and more releases, that also uh, it's it, it's militating toward having the serial approach because right, right, uh, right. If, if it takes three impressions instead of one to get you to actually process the idea, oh, this is the name of that show, I should go watch it, then that's going to be better for a TV show that's uh, releasing every week than for a movie that's releasing once. And if you don't go the opening weekend, then you know, you're basically not no, counted. No, I completely agree. I, I kind of glossed over that too quickly earlier but yeah more chances to grab people's attention and to get your brand to sink in right because right. again they, they may have to see it more than once right i mean you're you're shouting in a crowd so if you shout once even if it's a really big shout you right. know you're gonna miss some people well and once you establish that brand there's value to that and you don't want to give that up you want to milk that value right which is why american television series always run too long right there's sure. just like an, a truism about american tv it says you know, four or five seasons in, now everybody knows about it. So we're not going to cancel it now. Well, we're out of ideas, you know, too bad. Just keep, you know, just keep recycling them until they kick you off the air. Oh, and one more thing I want to say about market pressure towards serialization is that film is contracting because the revenue model for film never really recovered from DVD. They didn't really ever replace DVD with something else. So like, yeah, there's streaming, but the way that streaming rolled out, it's not making anywhere near as much money as DVD did, and it's not at predictable market the way that DVD was, uh, because DVD was like almost the same as VHS, which had already been established, you know, and it mm-hmm. just it was just a higher quality version. It wasn't fundamentally different in terms of how people used it. So w- what happened is that the film financing fell out because uh, from a financer's point of view, you know, they're looking for a predictable rate of return, and they their predictions just dried up and disappeared. Well, and this is kind of the film industry's fault, right? I mean, yeah, the they fact fu- that they yeah, didn't, they they didn't jump on these new platforms quickly enough, they fought them. They fought them, they didn't build their own platforms quickly enough, and now they have, you know, now they're all upset to be dealing with Netflix, but it's their own fault. They could have they could have prevented their they from could have made their own Netflix. Netflix. Yes, they could a have absolutely done that a long time ago. And it's dumb that they didn't, but they didn't, and that's past. Yeah. <laughs> and now there's a Netflix, and it's got billions of dollars, so they have to deal with it. And now there's an Amazon, which has other businesses to support it. 
in this field. And, you know, so there it's done. And what's happened is that TV hasn't had its advertising model fall apart yet. Now, of course, there are new emerging models in TV. There's the HBO subscription model. There's the Netflix model. And those models are gaining steam and gaining elite viewership. But they're not the mainstream model yet. The mainstream model is still pay cable TV with ads. So you pay some amount to a subscriber, which goes back to the channels, and then the channels sell ads against the programming. And, the, and that still is the bulk of the revenue in TV. And that is going to change. So that's something where, you know, right now the market pressure is toward more and more of this serial content because it gets, it's like the only thing that's still getting people to watch ads in serious numbers. And already that's being threatened by DVR, by streaming services, by subscription channels. Uh, it's going to get threatened more. Anyways, let's move on now and talk about the, the content of movies in the future. And this is, I think, maybe the hardest thing to talk about. So uh, this is going to be pure speculation as if we haven't already been engaging in that. Uh, but um, well, we're, Yeah, this is going to be even less knowledgeable speculation than right. well, so, the earlier part of the episode, but that's okay. Let's we'll, start with a fairly simple thing, which okay. is length. And here's, here would be my thesis about this. Okay. All lengths are possible. Yes. Increasingly so. But we're not going to see all lengths because the needs of telling a story and how long people can pay attention are still going to impose certain limits, right? Well, until we all install catheters so that we can sit in our VR pods indefinitely, we're going to you know, have to get up and pee every two hours, pretty much. Well, and I think we're still going to see a lack of production in the sort of middle range of content, right? So I think like... For one-off movies, right? We're not talking about TV episodes because obviously there's a half-hour length for right, TVs. Right, right, right. But for things that are movies, which is this episode, I think we're going to continue to see very short five-minute type things and sort of feature-length 90 to 180-minute things. Yeah. Uh, because the those are the storytelling lengths that work. I mean, the very short one allows you to tell essentially a joke, a short joke or something like that, a, a short vignette. And the longer one allows you to develop character and the middle kind of allows you to do neither one very well, I feel like. Right. Well, like, you know, short films maybe range up to about 20 minutes, but anything longer than that starts to feel really long and weird if it's a one-off thing in most cases. I think for the most part, I would expect the average experience, if you're going to do like a one-off narrative thing, to be 90 minutes, give or take a half hour. Right. I think that's going to probably stay close to the same. Yeah. And then I also think, um, this is a prediction that, that we've made before on the podcast, so this is a little bit of review, but because of the pace of change and the pace of technological change, particularly, we already are, and we're going to continue to see a lot more period sci-fi and fantasy stuff. Things that evade the problem of technological progress. Trying to set things in the sort of vague now is dangerous because if it takes you any length of time to release your product and then it takes some time to build brand awareness, there's a chance that your characters and the technology they're using and the settings they're in are going to become obsolete very quickly. Right. And you can avoid that by putting a date on it saying this happened in 1983. Right. Or by setting it in the future, the very far future. Right. Or by just saying this is a fantasy universe, this is Game of Thrones, it doesn't matter. Right. And I think all of those things are going to happen increasingly. I think already we're seeing more period sci-fi and fantasy in storytelling, even though the conventional wisdom is always that because it's cheaper to produce, contemporary is best. And there's a fourth thing that I think is going to happen, which is that production cycles are going to get even faster. Because one medium that doesn't have a problem, the now being, you know, moving too fast, is like reality TV. Mm. Right. If you're shooting it and like three weeks later you're airing it, you can be pretty certain. And it's kind of disposable too. Like you're not aiming for that to be something that sticks around. If yeah, if people watch it and are like, "Oh my god, that's last year's phone," it doesn't really affect. Again, we're talking about movies, right? Less so than reality TV. But I know, but so you can imagine shorter turnaround. Mm -hmm. So if you, you know, if you write something contemporary, basically shoot it fast, cut it fast, get it out. As long as you get it out quickly, it'll work, and that'll still be the cheapest thing to do because you don't need to build a world you know, even just, then though my advice to a filmmaker doing that yeah. would be so, okay think six months ahead well no if you're making it in 2015 <laughs> yeah somehow intentionally date your story as 2015 make it known to your audience this is in 2015 and that way like if people see it five years later they'll yeah, be like oh it's a period 2015 piece so basically make a period piece about now is what i'm saying right right, right. adopt that, that point of view every now is sort of a period these days because things are moving so fast don't like don't set it in in what i'm calling the vague now like they're just sort of like contemporary age you know without 
thinking about, oh, this is still a specific Right, because year. that'll still age quickly, right, right, right. right? Even if it's okay when it gets out. Yeah, that makes sense. I think, you know, you, we will see those changes. And I think, you know, the other thing that content's just always trying to do, and, and this is why it it's always like sort of a cycle, is it's always trying to subvert the audience's expectations, right? So there's always going to be, you know, you're going to get tired of whatever people are doing and, mm-hmm. and think, well, what if we did a thing that didn't do this thing I'm tired of. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, I feel like that's the origin of many stories. Right. There's a lot of different cycles where this happens, where the filmmakers are trying to create something novel and they're trying to subvert the expectations of the viewer. And one of those areas is in authenticity, right? So like sure. we see constant push towards how can we make our movies, our stories more authentic? And some of the attempts we've seen in recent history are you know, the switch to more handheld cameras, right. uh, the sort of the more reality filmmaking style leaking into movie making. Yeah. Uh, another thing is the sort of increase in grittiness, right? Like more stories that have like kind of, you know... Do you mean grittiness in the sense of like violence Violence and, things, and, or and sex like, okay. and, and, oh. and cursing and things like... Yeah. These are all attempts to... Also I think, grittiness in the sense of like noise. Like, um, you know, even though you shot digitally, you run it through a, you know a filter in Da, oh, in right, da Vinci right, right. that makes it look like dirty film, you know, or, or just makes it look like gritty uh, overexposed video, uh, which has its own like kind of weird look, you know? Um, but that also can make something feel oddly more authentic, even though it like looks objectively less real. But these things never continue to work. So for example, right. now when you see a handheld camera, it means nothing because right, it's just transparent. You yeah. Per- once upon a time, that was like a, a like a revolutionary thing that right. made it feel more real. And now it's just normal. Well, you know, it's really funny actually is, in VR, the camera really can't shake because you'll get sick. Of course. But because you can move your head, that ends up having a feeling of realism that's of far beyond. Yeah, of authenticity. That's far beyond shaky camera because of the perceptual quality of, of moving your head and having the image move. Sure. So, I mean, VR will be another way to chase authenticity, but I think their well will run dry too. And eventually even that strategy will stop having the same effect maybe. I guess if we if we look at the trend, right? So, Maybe I I don't know. I think in VR it's different because that presence is what VR does. Like it almost seems like delivering authenticity is like the feature of that medium. It remains to be seen. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, maybe we'll just start to question everything. But I mean, it should feel real if it's working. That's kind of like what it does. Well, I, I want to come back to this idea of questioning everything, actually, in a second. Um, but first, I want to talk about some of the other areas where the, the filmmakers are kind of chasing a moving target. Another one is with producing surprise and suspense. I mean, these are things that uh-huh. you can only produce really relative to the audience's prior experiences. Right. Well, this is one of the things that makes movie going already so subjective. Is like not everybody's seen the same movies. And so they're, you know, what will surprise or put them in suspense is different. As a filmmaker, you're stuck with the entire history of all the other movies and media that that viewer has consumed informing what they expect, right? Sure. Which you don't have, like if I produce like, say like a boxing match, right? Mm-hmm. There's going to be genuine suspense and surprise in what happens in that boxing match because it's just the real world and I'm broadcasting it live and someone's going to punch someone else in the face and they're going to fall down and no one could have possibly expected that. But like if I'm making a film about a boxing match, then all of a sudden, all of the previous movies that you've ever seen about boxing matches are going to be influencing what you expect. And all of a sudden, for me to try to subvert your expectations, I kind of have to deal with that, right? So I, almost, I have to be knowledgeable about all the things you've seen. I have to be knowledgeable about what it is you're expecting based upon that. Mm-hmm. And I have to try to find a way to trick you or give you a red herring. And I think this, you know, gets harder and harder, like the more that certain techniques get overused, right? And I think, you know, this right. is... Right. The only thing that makes it easier is that eventually people forget and stop watching classics and their Overton window or whatever of, of experience shifts. But yeah, I mean, it is challenging and the, the older a medium is, the harder it is because the diehard fans will have seen everything. And certainly in movies, it's that way. Comic book movies are the worst for this, right? Comic book movies now, which are practically all the movies, it seems like. Yeah. They, they produce almost no suspense or surprise because you almost always kind of know what's going to happen in the last third of the movie. I mean, yeah, there'll be a big fight scene. They'll At be least. cool. I mean, you usually pretty much can map up the, the entire movie. You know that they're going to get some new gadgets to sure. play with. You know that the villain is going to do something terrible. They're, they're so formulaic at this point. It's like you can make fun of the formula like in a Guardians of the Galaxy and everybody gets it. You know, it's totally broad and mainstream and everybody understands what you're making fun of because they've all seen it. And the thing is that if somebody devises a new way to make a surprising thing, then 
it kind of gets used up almost immediately. And this is why I think it's like a moving target, right? Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's a challenge to keep producing surprise and suspense the way it's a challenge to keep producing authenticity. The other one I don't want to gloss over quickly is humor, right? We did a humor episode. We talked about benign violation theory, right? right? The idea that you have to be somehow violated in your social mores by, by a joke to laugh, right? But it's got to be also kind of benign. It can't be so cruel that it like actually hurts you, right? And that's another thing where it's like, what actually is perceived as violating constantly shifts. Sure. And like once one movie violates a social norm in a funny way, it's like you can only milk that cow for so long right. before it and runs it, out. Especially since culture's long-term trend seems to be to basically be getting less uptight and less repressed. It's like there's fewer and fewer violations that also feel benign. Right. <laughs> so the, the picture that I'm painting here is, yeah. is there a way to get off this treadmill, right? Like, is there a way for movies of the future to be able to constantly produce more novelty in the form of authenticity, surprise, suspense, humor, without these wells running dry over and over again. Well, there might be better tools for filmmakers to catalog and avoid cliche, like, for example, story analysis tools or something like that, where, uh, oh, this has been tried, this has been done successfully in this movie, so it's probably burned according to our algorithm's rules or something, uh, which is, of course, a a conversation that filmmakers always have with themselves. But, you know, you could imagine a, a computer making that part of the process easier. But I don't see that changing the, sub- the subjective fundamental reality that different people have seen different movies and therefore, you know, you're going to make one movie and everybody's going to see it and, right. and they're all going to have different, you know, feelings about it. So the answer would be, would be personalized filmmaking. Like, so, I mean, this would be, I think, the most far out prediction that you could make about films in the future would be uh, if we had personalized algorithmic movie making AIs that could make a movie tailored to you in that moment to subvert exactly whatever your expectations are. So this is are. combining basically every technology we've talked about in the whole episode, right? Sure. Like the digital puppetry and like all these different things. So I basically sit down at my computer and I let it read my emotional state and it knows my viewing history and it just cooks a movie. Now, here's my problem with that. No human intervention it, at all. As great as and wonderful and utopian as that sounds, the problem I still have with that is... You want to talk about this film with other people, right? Yeah. So the more personalized it is to you, the less you can share it with other people. It's like, it's going to be the difference between going to see a movie, you know, with your friends uh, and like having a dream. And then, you know what I mean? It's like, nobody cares about your dream. Uh, Nobody will care about your personalized algorithmic movie. No, of course. It's exactly the same thing. I saw the weirdest movie last night. Oh, Oh, shut shut up. up. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's exactly what it's going to, no one's going to want to hear about it because they didn't experience it. I suppose it could record it and you could make your friends watch your algorithmically composed dream movie for you, but they wouldn't like it almost by definition because it was right. made for you. That's very funny. <laughs> now, so it's going to destroy the, the communal experience. I think people will still want to have those communal experiences, even if they're non-optimal. Oh, you know, what would be fun though. Remember like in the Marusek book where they had the consensus based elevators, right? That like distributed people to their floors in the living towers based on where they wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And, you could have consensus-based movies. What if everybody goes to like a virtual reality movie theater or a real movie theater? Isn't this a nightmare though? Isn't and it this reads like, everybody's emotional. It's like focus group things. the movie. No, no, no. It's like it's like a DJ. It's like what a DJ does. Okay, like, that's they, a better way to think they, about they, it. They, they average out the crowd. They say, for the most part, this crowd is like not feeling it, right? But I need to get them feeling it. So what am I going to do? I'm going to start with something chill and we're going to move it up. You know what I mean? Or whatever. They, they read the crowd. They figure out, on average, what's going to work best for everybody. They synthesize that. They maybe throw in some things to please the outlying people because they, they can tell they're outlying people. And they can probably tell, well, you know, I can, we can spend 10% of the movie on something that will please this guy and it won't piss anyone else off. And they cook a movie that's maximally enjoyable for that crowd <laughs> Weird. at that moment, right? Yeah, yeah. But then you still have the... Uh, ability to talk about it afterwards and you can be the one guy who's like well i like 10 percent of the movie but i guess you guys want right when well, you'd have the like the seed number for that algorithmically produced movie that you could then call up later to show it if it was a particularly good one you could call <laughs> it up later right and say go to like movie you know and then the code for it right 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 um now this should be the end of the episode <laughs> but I, I do have a couple weird little ideas that i want to share before we wrap okay because I've been trying to think of what are ways to get uncertainty back into movies? Because this is my pet peeve. I'm so fed up with these movies where... There's yeah, and they're n- all the same. Right, because forget a boxing match that's exciting. Like, a kid's Little League game has more drama and uncertainty than, than most movies. I'm like, how can we fix this? So, 
Weird idea number one. A, a very prominent filmmaker commits upfront that they are going to determine the ending of their movie, whether it's, let's just say it's a simple comic book movie. Does the hero win or the villain win? Okay. They're going to determine it via a coin flip that they're going to privately film, right? Okay. Uh, and date and, and prove that it happened. And uh-huh. they're going to use that as the basis with which to write the movie. Uh-huh. And before anybody watches the movie in the theater, some text will come on the screen and say, the outcome of this movie was determined as it was written <laughs> Buy a by coin a random flip, coin flip. Now watch the movie. <laughs> and so the movie, in a way, has been certified random, certified uncertain. You could even have like a like it's a like th- Brechtian random is randomization. That's a <laughs> you could even have like a like a like a some kind of standards body that like you know stamped the film approved. Like this was a genuinely random outcome film. And so then when you watch it. And when you get to the last third, you're like, I don't know, maybe the superhero is going to die. <laughs> right? That's funny. I, uh, I can't imagine that actually catching on. Okay. But, um, but that is funny. That does, yeah, by certifying certain elements of the movie random, you could, you know, you could provide some surprise for sure. I'm not sure that that would lead to any suspense, but it might lead to surprise. The whole goal is suspense, though. You're suspenseful. Well, but I feel both. like it's going to be like, you know, the, the third act of the superhero movie is still going to be an epic battle between the superhero and the villain in which there are high stakes. The only thing you don't know is like who gets the final blow in. So I feel like it's still going to get boring, like pretty fast. Well, I mean, that's an example with superhero that's movies. That's just, I mean, I'm just, I'm just using that because that's the dominant type of movie and that's the dominant type of third act these days. Okay. Not, you know. Well, and the last idea is the most speculative anyways, okay. which is like you mentioned earlier, like, you know, whether or not you would get normalized to VR. If you were spending enough time in VR, would you just not get the same impact anymore? You'd be like, well, this doesn't really feel real anymore. Hmm. And the thing is, if VR does get good enough, I guess it wouldn't normalize, right? It would be equivalent to real life. And if that were the case, then you could actually fool people about when they are and are not in the VR story. And that would be a way to produce genuine uncertainty, is to basically put people... So you're saying existence... Existence. Like, as, or as the, our life. Or the game, right? Or any right. Philip K. Dick novel. Right, right, right. right. Like, but it's one of those things where you sign up for it ahead of time. Right. You don't know when it's coming. Right. But sometime between now and a week from now, you're going to be immersed in a crazy narrative and you're not going to see it coming. Right, right, right. Um, I mean, that seems like a really cool, you know, pastime for a certain type of people, but I, I can't imagine again that going mainstream. We would all have to not have jobs at this point. I mean, it really just, wouldn't make sense. Yeah. Like if you have kids or something, you just cannot, you can't possibly do that. But, um, but that sounds, uh, like a cool, you know, I mean, like there are great movies that have that as a premise that <laughs> we just mentioned the names of. So. Right. So I'm just saying yeah. making that real. Right. And of course, at a, some, a certain point, all of the product placement and advertising and gamification that's happening in our real lives with our augmented reality is going to get so intense that generally speaking, it won't be easy to tell when you're in the real world and when you're in the virtual world because both places will be highly constructed highly dynamic computerized locations so i think we do have a philip k dickish future where we're constantly being like oh yeah i guess i'm not actually outside <laughs> or oh yeah i guess i am actually in public right now i kind of forgot, am i really emailing know? with ted or is this just ted's personal assistant bot right and it's like they're indistinguishable because the personal assistant bot is you know knows my preferences so well that like you can tell it's my assistant's bot because, let's be honest, it's prompt. <laughs> right. It's getting back to me quickly. <laughs> that's, that's how you can tell it's not me. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, that's all I got. So we'll, we'll all end. Right. So, yeah. So we don't know what the future of movies is, basically, but there are some ideas. And, um, you know, I, I really like movies. Uh, so I, I hope that there is still a market out there for that kind of experience. But uh, clearly, it's got a lot of other types of experiences to compete with these days. So. Hard to say. Let's uh, quickly run through our end of the episode plugs. We have an iOS app now, so please search for it on the Apple App Store. It is Review the Future podcast app. Is that right? Uh Uh-huh. And it comes to us courtesy of Podcast Pop. That's right. Uh, Those are our friends over at uh, Smart Drug Smarts. They're involved with that. Also, we could still use more ratings on iTunes. So please head over there if you like the podcast. Yes, if you use iTunes or Stitcher, please rate us. Or whatever podcasting program you use, please do a rating if it allows that. 
really, really helps us. We're also on Twitter at RTF underscore podcast. So you can contact us there with episode ideas, thoughts, reactions, or if you just want to tell us that we're wrong, feel free to email us too at feedback at reviewthefuture.com. And final thing, our comic book Kickstarter for our graphic novel called Let Go about a near future family struggling with technological unemployment and accelerating change. Uh, This Kickstarter is going live on August 31st. You can find out information about it at letgocomic.com. You can check out art. You can put your email address and sign up to be notified right before we go live with that Kickstarter. So Right, that would be a huge help to us if you want to help. You can join us on the first day of the Kickstarter. Yeah, at, at this point, you know, if you like the podcast, probably the best way you can support us coming up will be to uh, help us out with this Kickstarter in some fashion, even if it's just sharing it or, or pledging a single dollar. Right, so, that still helps a lot. Uh, we really appreciate it. And if you can afford it, you can pledge a few more dollars and you'll actually get a book, either a digital one or a, or a physical one, if you like that sort of thing. So anyways, that's our episode. Uh, As always, thanks for listening. And we'll be back in two weeks. Yeah, see you in two weeks. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 